This podcast contains violent adult themes and is not suitable for younger audiences. The eyes were very cold and lifeless, just black. I mean, the guy was a true psychopath. She was left in a creek bed. He treats females like chattels. He doesn't see them as being human. He was an absolute creeper, a guy that would go out on his own and pick vulnerable people. She was out in the open. She was naked. He's he's done something evil. Her throat had been cut. You're in a cell with a psychopath. Building a wild animal loose on society. He has no remorse. I'm Michelle Gately, and this is Predator. Leonard John Fraser was a sadistic psychopath. He brutally raped multiple women, bashing them and leaving them for dead. Eventually, he escalated into killing, but it's likely we'll never really know how many women he murdered. That's because he knew how to pick vulnerable victims or people who wouldn't be easily missed, like hitchhikers or women who had run away from home. He was finally caught and sentenced to life in prison for a series of murders in regional Queensland, which included the abduction of a little girl walking home from school 20 years ago. You might be wondering why I'm telling you all of this at the start of the series, or why I'm investigating a case that's been solved. The killer has been dead for more than a decade. It's because I don't think we've talked about it enough. 20 years ago, this case made international news. And to understand why, you need to learn about Fraser's last victim, nine-year-old Kira Steinhardt. I was a few years younger than Kira when she was killed. It's the earliest memory I have of a news story. Her abduction was every parent's worst nightmare before we knew names like Daniel Morecambe or Madeleine McCann. This year marks 20 years since Kira's death, and only those who grew up here in Rockhampton might remember the little blonde girl our whole town mourned. I'm a local and I lived through this case unfolding, but I don't even think I realised Kira wasn't this monster's only victim until I started working at the local paper, The Morning Bulletin. It didn't feel right to me that these women and their families had faded from my hometown's memory. I felt uncomfortable knowing Kira's mum was part of our community, but her daughter wasn't remembered by the wider community the same way as other murdered children. One of the main reasons I needed to tell this story is because we need to talk about the significant legal failings which allowed this violent predator to roam our streets and the way society has forgotten the women who weren't glamorous enough to be memorialised. I'm also doing this because I think there could be other victims, maybe up to a dozen other women all over Australia, and there will be families who never get answers. Before you meet Kira, though, I want to introduce you to Rockhampton. The first thing you notice about Rockhampton is the bulls. A fiberglass bull statue sits in the middle of a roundabout leading north into town from Queensland's main highway, the Bruce. More bulls are dotted around town. Some have puns printed on the side, paying homage to our identity as the beef capital. It's stinking hot in summer, and it's not much better in winter. The city is split by the muddy spine of the Fitzroy River, and that's famed for both Crocs and Barramundi. Rockhampton, rocky to the locals, is one of Queensland's growing regional cities. Yet for those who've grown up here, the social grapevine works nearly as fast as any small country town. And this crime, it's a brutal piece of our history. In my head, it's, I live it every day. 
it's it's just there. It's like I can picture it right now. That's the voice of Kira's mum, Teresa Steinhardt. She was 24 when she found out she was pregnant and says she always planned to be a single mum. Naturally, Kira gave me a few stitches. <laughs> <laughs> How did you feel when you first held her? Oh, well, I was stoked, as usual. Um, I couldn't sleep. It was just, nope, got a baby, can't sleep, got to keep an eye on her. Teresa and Kira moved to Emerald. That's about three hours west of Rockhampton, where they got a pet bird and planted a tree in the front yard. Uh, as Kira was able to grow up a little bit more, she would go next door and next door and next door and introduce her to herself to the neighbours because it, it was a round little circle, so it, it was safe and uh, all the kids got grew up together. Kira was three years old when Teresa and her new partner Blair moved three hours east to Rockhampton. Their relationship didn't last long after Kira's murder, so you won't hear much about him in this episode. You will hear about Connor, though. This was the baby brother Kira longed for. She was seven when Connor was born, and, as Teresa explains, she doted on him. She was a second mum. If she took over and controlled everything, so she adored him, and she adored him. Yeah, she loved going to help. Always like helping, and uh, yeah, loved singing, loved dancing, just like a, a normal little girl would love to do. It's fantastic. You can brush my hair. I'll listen to everywhere. Yeah. Love Sesame Street. Oh, I brought her up watching Sesame Street in play school. Connor, when he was born, he didn't have to ask for anything. Kira would naturally just go and do it for him or understood what he needed without him acknowledging what he wanted. So she would just go and do it. They sang together. He virtually just knew when she was going to school, when, the moment that she'd come home. Um, they were together all the time. They never split apart from each other, yeah. Did Kira like school? Did she? Oh, loved school. Yeah. Oh, yeah. She, um, before they bought the eight o'clock in, she would go, she would want to go to school seven o'clock so she can play with kids. But. <laughs> When three o'clock came, she couldn't play with the kids because I was always there to pick her up. Mm -hmm. So the deal was that she could go to school beforehand to have and that hour play. Time. Yeah, um, love school. She went to the PCYC after school uh, due to me working. Um, love doing that. Before we walk you through what happened the day Kira was killed, I want you to know what she looked like. There's a photo which was taken of her just a few weeks before she was killed. She's wearing blue jeans and a white t-shirt. She's lying on her stomach on the grass with her head cupped in her hand. Her short blonde hair is parted in the middle and she's smiling, showing her large front teeth. Teresa explains how the 22nd of April started with a school run, just like any other day. I took Kira and Connor to school and Kira was in the front seat and Connor was in his uh, baby capsule, yeah. And she leaned over to give me a kiss on the cheek and I gave her a kiss back and said, we both said, we, I love you. She leaned over to Connor and gave Connor a kiss goodbye. 
And it was just before eight o'clock, so she could go and play with the kids. And, uh, and I told her that um, I'll leave, I'm going shopping. Uh, she needed new shoes. So um, I said, I'll leave a note on, on your bed because I'll be at work. Um, and she had to walk home. So as I told you before, Rockhampton is split into north and south, divided by the Fitzroy River. The Steinhardt family lived in North Rockhampton, in the suburb of Bursica. It's one of the older parts of town, and you'll see 1950s high-set gable homes with huge backyards that are still part of the suburb today. Kira went to the local school, which was only a few minutes from her house. Teresa and Blair didn't really want Kira riding her bike to school because to get there she had to ride along two very busy streets. Instead, they said she could walk as long as she always followed the same path. When Kira would leave school, she'd walk down Bursica Street and then into Robinson Street at the high school and then make a left turn onto Dean Street, crossing the road at the lights. It had only been two weeks since Kira had been allowed to walk home on her own. From what I gather when we went to court, she did exactly that. Exactly. Except that day. On the 22nd of April 1999, which was a Thursday, a couple sitting on the veranda of their Dean Street home could see Kira walking up Robinson Street. It was the second day they'd seen a man following her. We've chosen not to name the couple in this podcast because at the time there was some anger in the community over when they chose to call the police, which was about 20 minutes after they saw what happened. On this day they watched Kira cut through a vacant block of land rather than crossing the road at the lights like she usually did. The land on the block was covered with knee-high grass and some gum trees. The couple saw the man follow her and they saw him hit her on the head from behind. Then they saw him take her away in a red car. They were reluctant to get involved because they believed the man was related to the girl somehow. Senior Sergeant Carl Burgoyne was one of the detectives on duty in Rockhampton on the afternoon of Cura's abduction. And he, along with Detective Darren Lees, would become a key part of the investigative team. Carl is still a serving officer, and at the time he was a detective senior constable. Darren Lees died from cancer in 2014. Essentially, the call came in from the neighbours who were across the road, uh, and it just so happened it was just on shift change, uh, just before shift change, like after school, and um, there was a lot of us ready basically to sign off for the day. Um, And of course, when a kid goes missing, uh, it's pretty much all hands on deck and uh, so we responded right from the get-go essentially it was um, a case of this is uh, this has been an abduction initially at the scene um, there uh, from memory there was a a shoe uh, minus laces which led us to believe that the laces might have been used as a binding implement Uh, and uh, immediately there was evidence there was some forensic evidence in uh, in particular a footprint uh, an adult's rather large footprint uh, that was in the dirt uh, towards the northern end of the path, which was, became a, a vital piece of evidence later on. Teresa was at work when her partner Blair phoned to say Kira hadn't arrived home from school. She explains what happened next. And uh, I said, nah. I said, she's probably at a friend's place or something, which I find 
wrong because Kiri wouldn't have done that. She's not a disobedient child. She was always does what she's told. Not, not because she would get in trouble, because she knew it was the right thing to do. I went home and uh, went straight into her room, naturally, just in case they didn't see her. <laughs> when Teresa got home, she looked in Kira's bedroom and found the new shoes that she'd left on the bed, with a note that promised $5 pocket money if all Kira's chores were done. Then we went to the police station and we had to write out a statement. It still didn't hit me fully till we actually went down Dean Street and saw all the lights. That's when it hit me. And then that later on that night, I rang Darren Lees and, and nagged at him. <laughs> you heard anything? And he informed me that they have someone and hopefully we'll have good news that night. Nope, two weeks. Darren Lees was one of the leading detectives on the case and had been involved in the arrest of Leonard John Fraser just a few hours after Kira had been kidnapped. This breakthrough was thanks to the witnesses across the road and a bizarre coincidence. That second key piece of evidence was something Ben Robson spotted as he drove down Dean Street. That was the busy four-lane road which bordered the eastern side of the vacant block. Ben was a guard at Etna Creek Prison, the facility north of Rockhampton where Fraser had served 12 years for a violent rape. Ben was on his way to pick up his child from the daycare centre in Robinson Street when he saw Fraser and recognised him as a former inmate with a history of sexual assault. According to Ben's evidence in court, the pair locked eyes as he drove past and Fraser gave a nod of recognition. A few hours later, after seeing news reports of the abduction, Ben drove back down Dean Street on his way to work and told police they should have a word with the man known as Lenny the Loon. Fraser's face is not easy to forget. Even now I get chills when I look at the mugshot police took that night. When you see it in colour, you'll understand what I mean about the creeping dread which fills your stomach. His piercing blue eyes hold no emotion, and he's staring down the lens with angry contempt. Because of his sighting and, and the actual eye contact between him and Fraser, where they acknowledged each, each other, uh, that obviously gave us a primary suspect to work with. After receiving that information, police went to Fraser's residence and... Uh, they were conducting some surveillance on the residence and um, Fraser being Fraser, uh, he was paranoid for obvious reasons um, and he actually uh, kept peeping out his window and uh, he, uh, he detected the surveillance um, and uh, came out of, his out of his unit and as a result of that he was confronted, um, spoken to and brought back to the station for questioning from there. He knew what he'd done and um, he'd, uh, essentially he just went on the fence straight away. There was, um, there, I, I don't think he actually expected police to turn up so quickly and it was just that chance encounter with Ben that, that cracked it. Um, and to have police on him so quickly, I think um, that rattled his cage. Even though police had such a huge breakthrough just hours into the case, the investigation stalled once they had Fraser in the watch house. 
Fraser had learned from previous court appearances and time in prison that DNA evidence could only really last about two weeks and he wasn't going to reveal the location of Kira's body before then. So the search for Kira was all anyone could talk about. It dominated the front pages of the morning bulletin and was reported in national and international news bulletins. Divers were trawling parts of the Fitzroy River and hundreds of emergency services personnel, the Army and SES volunteers painstakingly inched their way through bushland in blistering heat. They dug through suspicious mounds of dirt after nearby residents reported a bad smell. They searched the city's sewerage points and looked under four rotting pig carcasses piled up in bushland. Eddie Cowie was one of the people who volunteered to help find Kira. He's been volunteering with the State Emergency Service, the SES, for 33 years. At the time, he was just part of the everyday search team, but now he's the area controller for the Rockhampton region. One of the key things the SES do in Queensland is land searches with police, either for missing people or to find evidence. SES were advised very early in the piece um, in the afternoon, um, sort of in the, the later afternoon, um, on the 22nd, and uh, and I know that initially um, that occurred locally from the local um, police regarding what they knew at that point was obviously some severe or serious concerns for the welfare of Kira Steinhardt. The conditions for the people searching were brutal. Anyone who's experienced a Queensland summer will understand. And although it was April, the heat was still overwhelming, as Eddie explains. That time of the year for us, um, you know, we're still in the middle of, um, or you know, getting towards the end of summer, so the conditions were extremely humid at that point. The search initially focused on land on the northern side of the Fitzroy River, near a racetrack. That's the area where Fraser's girlfriend Chrissy told police she saw him taking something that looked like a doll from the boot of his car the afternoon of April 22nd. Essentially, um, that area down there was um, extremely, um, extremely well overgrown with um, very, very tall grass to the point where you actually couldn't see your other search members. The grass was almost eight feet tall. You actually used to put your hat on a large pole and stick it up so that you could actually see the hats above the grass so that we actually knew where other people were. Um, and so the terrain was, was horrendous. You know, you're essentially... Um, um, you know, pushing your way through grass that you just had no idea about what was in front of you. We had um, a number of police that were close to the river with firearms given the, the crocodile um, threat. You know, we, we wanted to make sure that we were not leaving any part of that search area um, untouched to the point where in some cases it was searched and searched and searched over and over um, just to make sure that we had not missed anything that was critical or had, um, had Kira been alive. Each day as the search dragged on, the community poured their grief into a memorial along the chain link fence at that vacant block of land on Dean Street. Teresa still has boxes of letters people wrote to Kira during that time. She let me look through some of the cards. They came from school friends, colleagues, strangers. It was the only way that our community could express their shock and their sadness and anger at what had happened probably four or five little flowers and um, on, on the fence line and down at Dean Street and uh, didn't think anything of it. And then next minute, it just blossomed in flowers, cards, teddy bears, 
Lady Diane when she passed away and her fence was all covered in flowers and teddies and that's how I went as my little angel. It wasn't just the fence line that was covered in uh, flowers. My whole home, flowers just kept rocking up, fresh flowers from everyone from different towns. And uh, there was phone calls after phone calls which I wouldn't know who rang. It doesn't rain much in Rocky, but when it started showering on those hundreds of cards and flowers, the SES put up tarps to protect that makeshift memorial. You know, there was a massive, a massive array of flowers that were being presented each and every day at that location. And, um, and uh, yeah, SES, um, you know, we, we were able to provide, you know, that particular um, small service, you know, and that was to, to, to continue to allow people to come there and, and share their, their moment with a, the laying of a flower and, and, and wishing, you know, um, wishing that Kira uh, was located safely. But, um, you know, that's what we could do at the time. It was a small showing of, um, of trying to keep, um, you know, that, that belief alive that um, people out there cared deeply about what was happening. We were a small community. You know, it rocked our community to the core in relation to, um, you know, how could a, a young girl walking home from, from school essentially, you know, assaulted and abducted and, um, and there was true fear. There was true fear in the community. There were, um, you know, parents who, who immediately closed up and made sure that the kids weren't playing outside. You know, we, you know, we were part of the community as well as being part of the SESC, experienced it from a, from a number of different aspects. However, you know, there was true fear and I think the, the frustration of what was happening at that point was, was, was um, evident to a lot of people and, you know, there was a true want to try to find Kira however we could. So each day detectives would try to get information from Fraser. The interview transcripts show he would offer up very confused or long-winded answers, but he repeatedly denied involvement. Carl explains a little more what that process was like. Fraser was a was a uh, an interesting person to interview. He um, I'd describe him as pure evil. He just uh, he had no uh, no remorse for his actions. Um, uh, protested his innocence from right from the get-go. In Queensland, child stealing is the correct term for the criminal charge of abduction. While Fraser was held by police, he was allowed legal representation and was joined by Rockhampton solicitor Doug Winning during his questioning. The first three days, I think they were just a blur because uh, I think we had about an hour of sleep each night. It was, uh, and we were sleeping at the desk sort of thing. Um, but uh, as it went on, like, well, after the first day, we probably realised that she'd been murdered. The investigation shifted from racing to find a missing child to bringing her body home. But it still remained just as important for those involved. And it was just basically um, some closure for the family and um, to get him for murder, because uh, child stealing, whilst it's a serious charge, it doesn't give you life imprisonment. And like, so, uh, and even, um, his solicitor, Mr. Winning, you know, I think he was aware of that. And, and kudos to Mr. Mr. Winning. He, um, whilst they take an oath of, to protect their client, uh, Mr. Winning, you could see his focus was on recovering that girl. When police confronted Fraser with the evidence that he had in fact been at the block of land on Dean Street, he told them he might have experienced a blackout of some sort to try and explain away why he was there. 
generally it was, uh, his whole demeanour was just pleading his innocence. Uh, that was pretty much it. It was just, uh, and he was one of these people that, that used a, a lot of hypotheticals, which came out later on in questioning, where he'd say, well, hypothetically, if I was going to hide a body, I'd do this. And there's a lot of misdirection and stuff. It was like, it was like the, the three cups and a pea game. So for the investigating officers, building a solid case against Fraser became just as vital as recovering Kira's body. But for Carl and Darren Lees, the hardest part of their daily interaction was with Teresa, who didn't for a second give up hope that her daughter would be coming home. You're going from a high in getting some more evidence back to talking to the family and they're the ones that still haven't got closure and you're sort of living the... Living the um, you're living the nightmare with them. I suppose we, as police we get hardened and we get, um, like, you, you can't sort of look down one particular path. You've always got to have uh, the outside-the-box approach. And there's always hope, but at the end of the day, common sense dictates that this guy's a career criminal. He has no remorse. He's, um, uh, yeah, he, he's, he's done something evil. Uh, and whilst you... You try and prepare the family for the worst, you, um, you have to give them hope as well. Eddie explains how these emotions affected the search teams. As the days went on and certainly as we, we moved towards the, the fifth or sixth day, there was, there was you know, a real level of, um, of um, sadness within the search groups and, and, um, and essentially, uh, you know, we, we were trying to step up um, you know, and broadening where we could search and, and where we couldn't search, and um, and you know, um, you know, it, it became it became a real a real challenge, and there were people who you know really connected to um, to the whole this whole um, sadness. As I said before, Teresa always believed she would get to cuddle her little girl again, and here she tells us how she coped with the search process. I had. Uh... I had dreams when I did sleep that my dad that passed away was helping us search for her because he was a fireman. <laughs> he always said, we'll find her no matter what. My hopes were always there that we will find her alive no matter what that he just had her locked up somewhere safe. <sighs> During the search, Teresa was surrounded by family. Her house was bursting with dozens of relatives from across the state. But that level of support could only last for so long. Kira went missing on the Thursday. Friday I had my mum, my sister. Kira's dad came down from Cairns. Uh, then by Saturday I had uh, rallies from Bundaberg, from Melbourne up. And then next day I think my house had about 32 family members. And then we all went, I got all the family and asked uh, that the police give me a section to go looking. <laughs> so they just gave me a creek bed just down the back, back end somewhere. We all just went for a walk looking for objects. <laughs> Just anything to help me, keep me, make me do something. That moment of the two weeks was uh, quite a blur. From what I gather, 
from my friends and family is that uh, I never slept. They ended up giving me tablets that would knock a horse out, apparently. <laughs> I refused to sleep. <laughs> we would have a barbecue in the backyard and they put a mattress and that down there for me. And uh, I can vaguely remember the barbecue. But apparently it knocked me out. <laughs> but it didn't last long. Then, on May 6, day 13 of the search, came the news that everyone was dreading. Fraser agreed to take police to Kira's body. He'd uh, secreted um, Kira's body in bushland off the old Yapoon Road, a uh, little track, that, and you walked across a little stream, and a dry stream, and it was just underneath a tree and some shrubs. That day that they did find her, uh, and Darren had to tell me. Uh, it was was not good news. I said, I don't care, I still want to go and see her. And he said, no. She was out in the open. She was naked. Her throat had been cut. And she was left in a creek bed. And... Uh, I still found it hard to believe that she was gone. And then when we went to the coffin, because it's just a wooden box, that doesn't tell me that she's gone. And we had to lift, we had to pick the coffin up just to make sure it was white. I still find it very hard that she's gone because I didn't get to see her. Kira's legacy is actually rather remarkable. Fraser was a killer with rat cunning, but he'd slipped up when he attacked Kira, and that ultimately would prove to be his biggest downfall. For me to survive, I turned it around. That she is the hero of the story. That she caught him and put him in jail. That she saved the other girls from being hurt. And the ones that were killed have been brought back to their family. That's how I've survived. I'm fine if I live that. (laughs) The investigation into Kira's murder had uncovered some chilling evidence about Fraser's violent past, but the very fact he had such an evil history was also the reason he almost got away with murder. Predator is a production of The Morning Bulletin, a News Corp publication. It's written by me, Michelle Gately, and recorded and produced by Alan Renica. Thanks goes to Caroline Graham from Bond University and Astrid Edwards from Bad Producer Productions for consultation and advice throughout. Margaret Wood provided transcription services. Our thanks also to Eddie Cowie, Detective Senior Sergeant Carl Burgoyne, Alan Quinn, Wayne Petherick, Fraser Pierce, and especially Teresa Steinhardt, who also provided audio of Kira for the project. For full music credits, see the show notes. 
You can find all the episodes of this podcast on Apple iTunes or listen and look through exclusive photo galleries and stories at themorningbulletin.com.au.